James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. So you think you're religious. The title of this sermon comes from the at least once popular TV show, So You Think You Can Dance. In the show, the contestants dance to prove whether or not they can dance. Uh, but notice the way that it's put. The, title's p- the way that it's, the title is put. It's not simply, can you dance? It's not, let's see if you can dance. It's, so you think you can dance. Kind of like with a little bit of attitude to it. Oh, so you think you can dance, huh? Well, let's, let's get you on the dance floor and see if indeed it is true. And in the same way, that's the way I mean the title of this sermon. So you think you're religious. Well, let's put it to the test and find out if what you think is true about yourself really is true. What does the evidence say about your life? So you think you're religious. Now, I know I'm taking a risk by using the word religion in this way, because religion has a bad connotation in our culture, and even even among uh, Christian culture sometimes. We might prefer to say that we have a relationship and not a religion. Uh, Others might prefer to say that they are spiritual but not religious. But I'm using that word without all the baggage of that. I'm using it in the sense that James is using this word in a positive sense, just like James is. When he says religion, he's talking about a way of life, a way of one can express his devotion to God through his practical acts, through his practical obedience and worship. James is talking about one's devotion to God and how it expresses itself. So today... When we'll be talking about religion, we're talking about it in this way as a good thing. So with that understanding, let me put the title to you again. So you think you are religious. And the reason, I don't make it a point of questioning everyone's faith all the time, but the reason it's important for us to consider this question is because this, getting this wrong is a lot different than being deceived about whether or not you can dance, Right? It's a matter of life and death. We might think that we are living a life pleasing to God and be totally deceived. That's what James is saying here. Are you really religious? Do you have a self-deceived religion or do you have a God-pleasing religion? So look at our passage. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongue deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Dear Father, as we take a moment and consider this passage and how it relates to our own lives before you and whether or not we are truly Religious, we pray that you would bring conviction by the power of your spirit. We pray that you would apply your word to our hearts, that our eyes would be lifted beyond ourselves and our behavior, but they'd be lifted to Christ who is our Savior, that we would turn to you once again in repentance and faith. In Christ's name we pray, amen. In this passage, James distinguishes between true and false religion. False religion consists merely in thinking oneself to be religious and in performing certain outward religious activities. But true religion is marked, James says, at least by three 
behaviors or in three ways. Controlling one's speech, caring for the helpless, and keeping oneself morally pure. True religion is marked by controlling one's speech, caring for the helpless, and keeping oneself morally pure. And here's what I think you know, it, it can all boil down to if we're thinking about a main point or a, a main theme. God-pleasing religion flows from the gospel and reflects the character and priorities of God. God-pleasing religion flows from the gospel and reflects the character and priorities of God. God. In other words, God-pleasing religion is a God-reflecting religion. James isn't just giving us his own ideas about what is religious or what is true religion. Rather, he's drawing from the wealth of Scripture and from God's dealings with his people throughout history to show that what pleases God is seeing his own character, his own priorities, his own desires and loves and actions reflected in our lives in relationships with others. So as we consider this true religion, this God-pleasing, God-reflecting religion, I want us to consider four truths about it. Four truths about this true religion or this God-pleasing religion. First, it's possible to be deceived about your religion. It's possible to be deceived about one's own devotion to God. We're confronted immediately in verse 26 with the possibility that someone may be deceived about their own religion. It's possible to consider yourself as living a God-honoring, devoted life and yet be deceived about it. We don't know exactly what James might be referring to here. Why this man thinks he's religious. Perhaps James could have in mind people like the Pharisees who would perform all the outward activities related to the law of God Uh, seemingly in obedience to the law of God. They prayed, they fasted, they gave their money, they assembled together on the Lord's Day, and this, they thought, made them religious. Simply by doing these outward acts, they thought this made God happy with them. Years ago, I remember playing church league basketball. Have you ever played church league basketball or softball? Uh, Do you know how you can tell a church league basketball game apart from any other basketball game or league? What's that? Well, here's where, where I see the difference. They pray before and after the game, but often everything else in the middle of the game is the same. All the talking junk, unbelievable attitudes. You wouldn't believe, or maybe you would if you've been involved with it. You wouldn't believe the kind of language or the kind of insults or the kind of Anger that boils up and over in even church league games. Or softball, for that matter. And to this, James says, that person's religion is worthless. Anyone who thinks he's religious or spiritual and yet doesn't keep a tight rein on his tongue deceives himself. And his religion is worthless. Now, Do you see this? Do you see that the implications for this are absolutely staggering? It should cause us to stop and pause and say, wow. Do you have a tight rein on your tongue at ball games, at home when emotions start flaring, when you're driving down the road and someone cuts you off, when your parents tell you no? 
Now the reason this is so problematic, the reason this renders one's religion worthless is because not being able to control your tongue is only symptomatic of your own lack of self-control in general. Of you not being able to control yourself. James talks about that a little bit later. He picks this theme up again in chapter 3. And he says, show me a man who can keep his tongue in check and I'll show you a man who has control over his whole life. But a man who can't keep his tongue in check has a worthless religion no matter what he thinks about himself. So friends, let us be careful that we are not deceived about who we are in relation to God. A few years ago, I was excited to see someone who I had admired you know, earlier in my life, and it just happened that we crossed paths in this instance. And I shook his hand, and it appeared by the expression on his face that it was the first time he had ever seen me. Have you ever been in that situation before? They don't recognize you. You thought, someone, you, thought you knew someone, maybe even that you knew them well, but they did not know you. And what a dreadful and frightening thing it would be for the Lord to come in all His glory And to be convinced that you belong to him and you know him. And for him to turn to you and say, depart from me. Because I never knew you. This is why this question is so important. Because it's possible to be deceived about one's own religion. One's own spiritual state before God. So then what is true religion? How can we know that we're not deceived? We want to know this. Well, James doesn't give us an exhaustive list, but he does give us two marks of what pure and faultless religion is. One is caring for the helpless, and the other is keeping oneself morally pure. So our second truth about this God-pleasing religion is caring for the helpless is a vital mark of God-pleasing religion. Caring for the helpless is a vital mark of God-pleasing and God-reflecting religion. Verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after or to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So James says one mark of true religion is caring for the helpless. Uh, By using specific examples of orphans and widows, he's not simply limiting our care to those two groups. He's giving a larger, a broader category for what he's talking about. Those who don't have any hope. Those who are without help. To those two groups, we could add others who fit in this category. Those who are poor. The homeless. The mentally ill. The physically handicapped, immigrants, homebound, drug addicts, refugees, and the list could go on and on of those who have, cannot come up with resources on their own. Those who are hopeless. Those who don't have perhaps family to care for them in the midst of their distress. But James, again, isn't just making this stuff, this stuff up. He's not coming up with these things on his own. There's a long history in which God's people are called to care. For these sorts of people. For the widow, for the orphan, and the stranger. So in Deuteronomy 14, God's people are instructed to bring all the tithes in, and at the end of three years, to bring them in so that the Levites and the foreigners and the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied. 
and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. The prophet Isaiah says, Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Knowing this, then, we ought to ask ourselves, is our religion, is our devotion, is our expression of devotion to God characterized by by care for the down and out, the helpless, the hopeless, the outcasts of our society? And consider, too, not only individually, but us as a church. What are we doing to demonstrate God's care for those who are helpless? What are we doing to seek and reach and serve the poor? Who are we seeking to reach and serve and love? Sure, we're trying to reach everyone with the gospel, absolutely. Anyone and everyone we come in contact with, we want to proclaim to them the good news of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners and risen from the dead, and we want to show them the love of Christ. Young and old, Rich or poor, black and white and tan, but there's a sense in which our hearts ought to be turned toward those who are helpless and without hope. Let me add too, our ministry to them shouldn't simply be one of of giving them the material uh, needs, giving them material resources that we think that they need. Because in our materialistic culture, we tend to think of meeting someone's needs as primarily or even exclusively giving them stuff. But notice the term James uses. We should visit them in their distress. He has far more in mind than simply giving them things. There's more going on here in James's mind than simply meeting their physical needs. Among orphans and widows... There are a host of unseen needs which are much more important than their physical needs. Hope, joy, peace, love, acceptance, friendship, family. Right? Isn't that what's missing in the life of an orphan and widow? We are to love others and seek to meet their physical needs, absolutely. But there's much more than that. And I think that's part of James' point here. These orphans and widows need A family, father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. And the family of God is the family they need. So what might this look like for you to demonstrate your devotion to God by caring for widows and orphans? For our church, what might it look like for us to see those in need not simply as projects, but as people who may be in desperate need of hope? And a family, this is what true religion looks like. This is what is pleasing to God. Now, I certainly don't want to overlook what this means for us to care for widows, but I want to focus for a moment on our responsibility to care for orphans. Now, not every Christian is called to adopt or to foster, but every Christian and every church is called to, in some way, support and care for orphans. I think this ought to be high on our priority list. As Russell Moore says, when we adopt and when we encourage a culture of adoption in our churches and communities, we're picturing something that is true about our God. We, like Jesus, see what our Father is doing and do likewise. And what our Father is doing, it turns out, is fighting for orphans, making them sons and daughters. So don't miss this. This is important. 
The reason God finds this so pleasing is because it reflects his own love for the weak. His own care for the helpless. It reflects his own priorities in the world. Were we not all spiritual orphans when Christ died for us? Jesus Christ, the true Son of God, left his heavenly home and sought us out. Not because we were worthy of love. Not because we could do so much for his kingdom. Not because of all the potential that we had. He sought us because God is love. Because he's full of mercy and grace for his people. We were strangers and enemies. Estranged from God without hope in the world. But Christ died on the cross for our sins to bring us to God. But notice the wonder and the glory of what God has done in saving us. By his grace and because of Christ, God could have forgiven our sins and given us a redo. Okay, start clean. I've forgiven all your past sins. Now you start living for me. Start earning it now. He could have forgiven our sins and welcomed us into his kingdom as his servants for all eternity. Wouldn't that not be a glorious thing? Would we not serve the greatest master and the greatest king for all eternity and be thrilled to be in his kingdom? But what has he done? He's not simply forgiven us for all our sins. He has not only welcomed us into his kingdom as his servants. He has done all that and he has made us his sons and daughters by adoption. Consider the lavish grace of God in calling us sons and daughters. And so we are through Christ. This is the glorious work of Christ for us, bringing us into a family, making himself our father. How can we neglect such an opportunity to share the love of Christ and reflect back the glory of God and what he has done in the gospel? Adoption is a reflection of the gospel. Caring for widows and orphans is a reflection of God's own heart for sinners. So not every Christian is called to adopt, but every Christian is to have some part in caring for widows and orphans. And what will this look like for us? Maybe for you it will look like adoption. Maybe God has stirred your heart that you would desire that, that God has given you the capacity and the gifts to do that, and you should do it. I will speak to you at some point and maybe convince you you shouldn't do it, because not all Christians should adopt. But, but maybe it would include you supporting someone who has found that as their desire and what God has called them to do. I talked with a, a friend a few weeks ago who wants to adopt. He and his wife desire it. Very much, but they have no idea how they're going to come up with the money to adopt. And that's where the church comes in. Supporting the care of widows and orphans. I pray God will give us a heart, His heart, for the widow and the orphan, for the stranger and all who are without help or hope in the world. Because this is what reflects His glory. So that's one mark of true god pleasing, God-reflecting religion, caring for the helpless. Another that James gives is by keeping oneself morally pure. So notice this third truth about this God-pleasing, God-reflecting religion. 
Keeping oneself morally pure is a mark of God-pleasing religion. Keeping oneself morally pure is a mark of God-pleasing religion. This is religion that is pure and faultless before God the Father. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Much of the world around us would be plenty happy if we just left it at the first mark. Right? Many people would love us if we simply saw our religion as caring for the weak and the helpless. Now, I think if we did a better job of it, we might be more respected at times. But James is insistent that true religion isn't simply social activism. It's not simply doing good things for those who are in need. That's what we would have if all our faith, all our religion was about caring for the helpless. But this mark of moral purity is one that the world really couldn't care less about. In fact, many might see it as judgmental. For us to try and remain morally clean and to not be polluted by the world necessarily implies that the world is morally impure and unclean. Now James has already shown us previously our own responsibility in sin and temptation. A few weeks ago we saw uh, James say that temptation comes from our own evil desires. Do you remember that? As we dwell on and feed those desires, sin is accomplished and eventually results in death. But here, James brings some, some balance to that picture as well. While it is true that sin comes from within us, it is also true that the world is morally corrupt and impure and can stain us. So I can imagine someone, a Christian, saying that they cannot be stained by the world. That they know they can't be re- rendered unclean by what they come into contact with in the world. So it doesn't really matter what what they do or where they go or who they hang out with. And yet Scripture does teach us, and we know by experience, don't we, that we can be affected by those around us, by what we're surrounded by. It takes only a little poison to contaminate a glass of water. Litter piles up on the roadside, and before you know it, it is full of trash. So we treat our water to make it clean. We organize, adopt a highway programs to clean up the roadsides. But how vigilant are we to keep our hearts and our minds unstained by the world? Have we forgotten Jesus' words which tell us to gouge out our eye or cut off our hand if it causes us to stumble? Have we forgotten that we are not of this world? That we are to be separate? That we are different? That we were made for another world? You see, the reason, reason this pleases God is the same reason why caring for the helpless pleases God. Because in keeping ourselves unstained from the world, we reflect the purity, the holiness of God. Now we know that until we die or Jesus returns, we will not arrive at perfection. But the Holy Spirit empowers His people, enables them to live lives which bring glory and pleasure to God. And this is a key principle to understand in all of this, our fourth truth about this God-pleasing religion. God-pleasing religion flows from the gospel and is empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
This God-pleasing, God-reflecting religion flows from the gospel and is empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's not just if you do these things, then God will be happy with you. Someone could care for the helpless all their lives and strive to keep morally clean all their lives and God not be pleased with them. Martin Luther says, It is not imitation that makes sons. It's sonship that makes imitators. It's not imitation that makes sons. It's sonship that makes imitators. It's not by doing these things that we become God's children. It's because we are God's children by faith in Christ that we do these things. In other words, James, from verse 18 onward, has been driving home this point that what we do flows from who we are. Doing flows from being. We have been born from above, not by our own will, not by our own choice, but by the will and choice and pleasure of God. The word of truth, the gospel, that Jesus lived a perfect life, died on the cross for sinners and rose from the dead. This has been planted in our hearts and it is producing in us fruit for God's glory. You don't earn God's favor by helping the helpless and living a pure life. You have God's favor because of another, because of Christ. Christ himself lived a life of caring for the helpless. Wasn't his life characterized by ministering to the outcasts, to the down and out, to those everybody else rejected? The lowest of the low, he embraced the leper. He spoke truth to the Samaritan woman, spent time with her. He spent time with and ministered to the down and out, those who were helpless and hopeless. And he died on the cross for those who were most helpless and hopeless of all. We who were dead in our sins and transgressions, estranged from God and without hope. Do you realize you were without hope? Helpless. In your sin, when Christ died for you, was Christ not perfect in purity and righteousness? It was John the Baptist who, when seeing Christ, said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Christ lived a life of perfect moral purity. He and He alone kept Himself from being polluted by the world. And yet, what does Scripture teach us? He took upon himself our impurities. Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, took upon himself all the filth of our sin. All the moral ugliness and nastiness of sin when he died on the cross for sinners. And by his wounds we are healed. By his blood, the stains of our sin are removed. Because of Christ's perfect life and sacrificial death, we are no longer orphans. God has brought us into the family of God. And by Christ's perfect life and sacrificial death, we are made clean. All our impurities washed away by the blood of Christ. And now, having been cleansed by the blood of Christ, we are filled with the Spirit of God. And we are empowered To no longer live for ourselves, but to live for him who gave himself up for us. 
We are empowered to live for the sake of others. We are empowered to care for the helpless, to resist the pollution of the world around us. This is the good news of the gospel. How can this not overflow from hearts filled with gratitude and joy at being welcomed into the family of God, at being washed clean from all of our sins? How could this not then overflow to the lowest of the low, to the helpless, to the hurting? I pray that God will do this in us, that we might express our devotion to God in true God-pleasing, God-reflecting religion. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, as we consider our own sin, as we consider our our own lack of self-control with our tongues, with our speech, our tendency to be passive in caring for the widow and the orphan, our tendency to let down our guard against the pollution of the world, we recognize in this we have failed. We have failed to express true religion. And for this we come to you in repentance of all of the careless words we have spoken against our brothers and sisters. We come in repentance and confession that we have sought to live the American dream rather than to live as kingdom citizens. We have, we have cared much more about our bank account or lavish living than we have the orphan without hope, without help. For all these things, we, we come to you in repentance. And ask that you would change us by the gospel. Ask that you would change us by Christ and the message of him crucified and risen for sinners. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.